invite everybody to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 19. We left off last week in verse 8, so we're up to verse 9 this morning in 2 Samuel 19. This is the last of three messages in that story arc of Absalom's conspiracy. Two weeks ago we saw Absalom steal the hearts of the men of Israel and conspire to take over the throne of David in the city of David. King David was forced to flee to the other side of the Jordan. And then last week, Absalom's and David's armies clashed. They fought one another to see who would ultimately win. David won, but it didn't feel like it. Because Absalom died and David was overwrought with grief and sorrow. Today's message finishes that story with a sermon I'm going to call, with apologies to J.R.R. Tolkien, The Return of the King. The Return of the King. This is the story of how David came back to the city of David, how King David became king of Israel once again. It's the return of the king. You might have thought and been excused for thinking that the return of the king would be relatively easy. It's not. Even though Absalom has died, and many of those who supported him in the rebellion have also died, 20,000 men die, there is still much civil unrest. There is a fundamental hostility between the northern ten tribes, often called Israel, and the two southern tribes, often called with one name Judah. And after Absalom died, there was a squabble between them over whether or not David should return as king. What should be obvious apparently still wasn't. Let's pray together and then I'll show you what I mean. Lord, thank you for the testimonies from John and Roy of your work in their lives this last week at the ranch. We pray, Father, for a continued work. What they learned would continue to be applied as they go through the rest of their life. wouldn't be a one and done I've been to the mountaintop and now what kind of experience. We pray for those that are going off this week. We pray that it would be deeply meaningful and encouraging for them and shape them and form them into the image of Christ. We believe, Lord. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We pray that Your Spirit would illumine our minds as we study Your Word. And that we would walk away changed. Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, but changed from one degree of glory into another, that we would become more and more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Chapter 19, we're going to start in the very last part of verse 8. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all arguing with each other, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled the country because of Absalom, and Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? You see the feeling in Israel right now? Apparently there was this debate, intense debate, going on about whether or not to re-accept King David. And they were arguing with each other. King David beat the Philistines. King David was our king. 
But then he wasn't. Because Absalom, whom we anointed. But now Absalom's dead. Why don't we bring our king back immediately? You see the the tension that's going on? It seems that Israel, that's the northern tribes, okay, that's important. Sometimes when we say Israel, we mean all of Israel, and sometimes when we say Israel, we mean the northern part. Here it's talking about the northern part, because it's going to be contrasted with the southern part. It seems that Israel is ready to bring him back. There doesn't take that much arguing, and they're ready. They're, they're first. The southern tribes, including Judah, whom David was a member of, were apparently hesitating. Okay? Look at verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, asked the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. Have you heard what they're saying up north? They want me back. We're family, right? What's going on here? You're my brothers, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. Whoa. That's a bold move, isn't it? Who's this Amasa guy? What was he the general of? He was the general of the rebellion. Amasa was the general of Absalom's army. Look at chapter 17, verse 25. He was a traitor. This is like saying, after the Civil War, we'll make Robert E. Lee head over the the army. Okay, That's what this is like. David was promoting Amasa over his own general. That's a brilliant move. David was demoting Joab, who had just killed his son Absalom, and he was building bridges towards those who had been his enemies. It's brilliant, and at least for the time, it works. Verse 14, he won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. Come on home. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. So he's progressing towards home. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Notice it's the the men of Judah that have showed up on time. The men of Israel who were first are now second. That's going to be important. Shimei, son of Girah, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. Remember a couple weeks ago as David left the city, he kept encountering various people as he went, kind of in steps and stages? Well, I said then that in times of trouble, you can often find out who your friends really are, right? Well, it's a little harder to tell when you're the winner than when you're in trouble. Because David is going to meet some people and there's going to be a question mark hanging over some of their heads. Was this person really for me or do they just want some of the spoils? David meets the same people and a few more going back than when he came out. He progresses back in stages. The first is that man who didn't pretend at all to be David's friend when he was down. Shimei, verse 18. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Girah, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember 
how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Pretty good speech for a guy who was not on David's side a few days ago. Do you remember what he did do? He was throwing the rocks at him and throwing the dust at him and cursing his name. This is his one shot to get some clemency because Abishai, who wanted to kill him then, hasn't forgotten. Verse 21. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shouldn't Shemai be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Clemency. So the king said to Shemai, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. Now that, those are important details right there. Why, is, why are those important? Because it shows Mephibosheth's loyalty. I've got three lessons to learn from this story today. And the first one is summarized by that one little word. Loyalty. Mephibosheth's loyalty has been in dispute. Do you remember what Mephibosheth said when he met David on the way out? That's a trick question. He wasn't there, was he? And his servant Ziba did show up with a string of donkeys and some much-needed refreshment. And he had said that his master, Saul's grandson, whom David had shown chesed to, was excited about the conspiracy and was hoping to be restored to the kingship through this rebellion. That's what Ziba had said. Remember that? And David had said, okay, well, you can have everything of Mephibosheth's. You can have all his stuff. Assuming the king returned someday. But is that what actually had happened? Look at verse 25. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddle and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. So according to Mephibosheth, it was all Ziba's fault. He wouldn't bring him his, his wheelchair. He wouldn't bring me the donkey. So he had to stay home. And Ziba spread slander about him. How does David know that, that Mephibosheth is telling the truth? It's the feet and the mustache and the clothes, isn't it? Mephibosheth had gone into exile just without going into exile with David. He'd done it in his spirit. 
And he dressed like it, even while staying in the land ruled by Absalom. See, this was a risk Mephibosheth was taking to act like this while Absalom was the king. And David also knows that Mephibosheth is telling the truth because all he seems to care about is the return of the king. Verse 30 again, Let him take everything now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. That's a great attitude. And it shows both humility and loyalty. Loyalty is another word that we can use to translate that Hebrew word chesed. Loyal love. Steadfast commitment to another. The Lord is the best at loyalty. And He wants to develop it in us as well. This last week, Heather and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And one of the things I've always loved and appreciated and have been overwhelmed by is her fierce loyalty to me. It makes sense that married people should be and would be loyal to each other, but I never knew how strong loyalty could be and how sweet it could be until I had been married to this woman for some time. To whom should you be loyal? To whom should you be showing chesed, unfailing love? Because it's not just something that married people ought to show. Mephibosheth is showing it to David, his uncle, who has been showing it to him. Often the person who needs loyalty the most is in trouble and needs help. They don't look like a winner at the time. They can't scratch your back. So it would be easy to ignore theirs. But that's not what a friend does. Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's what Barzillai did. Verse 31. Barzillai the Gileadite also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years of age. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. Remember, he had been there for him during the hard times. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem and I will provide for you. But Barzillai, very contentedly, answered the king, How many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is good and what is not? Can, can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of men and women singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance. But why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant Kimham, probably his son or maybe his grandson. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever pleases you. The king said, Kimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever pleases you. And anything you desire from me I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and gave him his blessing, and Barzillai returned to his home. Again, here we have a picture of loyalty. Someone whose main concern was not for themselves, but for someone else. The thing that Barzillai cared the most about was simply the return of the king. How happy and content he is that the king is safe again and crossing back home. And notice how blessed he is because of his loyalty. 
Remember, when King David is at his best, he reminds us of what King Jesus will be. And notice how King David, upon his return, rewards those who have been faithful to him. How much more will King Jesus, upon his return, reward those who have been faithful to him? Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, with his reward. How much more will King Jesus, upon his return, reward those who have been faithful to him, loyal to him, whose main concern is the return of the king? Paul said to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Do you long for the return of Christ? For those who have been longing, loyally longing for the return of the King, there's great reward. The New Testament commands us to long for, to wait with constant expectation for the return of King Jesus. And there's great reward in store for those who have longed for His appearing. So David finally returns home. But that doesn't mean that all is well. Look at verse 40. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimmim crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Important numbers there, right? There's something brewing here. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Now a few days ago, they were arguing about whether or not to bring King David home. Now they're arguing over who has the right to do it and who would do it better. Can you say brothers? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and besides we have a greater claim on David than you have. So why do you treat us with contempt? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. Nuh-uh, uh-huh, nuh-uh, uh-huh. Going to turn into a shoving match soon. In fact, that's what Sheba is counting on. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri, but the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David's home. But all is not well. In fact, there's another civil war. Sheba is a troublemaker. He seizes this opportunity to divide and conquer. He is certainly not loyal. And he wants to dissuade anyone from being loyal to King David. He plays off the civil unrest to try to create a civil war. And David knows he must do something about that. But first, he does something about the concubines. Verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them 
but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Here's our second key word for today. Consequences. Consequences. If there's been one theme, one thread running through all the sermons from Mother's Day to today, it would be that God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Your sin will find you out. Even when there is forgiveness of sins, there often will be consequences. The odometer may read zero, but there's still a lot of miles put on that car. Dire consequences. There were dire consequences for David's sin with Bathsheba against Uriah. A sword pierced his family. And these ten women suffered for it, didn't they? Raped by Absalom, who had taken such umbrage at the rape of his sister Tamar. David believes he has to sequester them for the rest of their lives so that they live as widows. A consequence of his sin and Absalom's sin. It's the right thing to do in this difficult situation. And it's a consequence. You know, we like to think we're going to get away with everything. That God may not be watching or caring. That there may not be any negative effects from our sin. But that's just wishful thinking. Our sin carries consequences. And not just for ourselves. Is there a temptation in your life right now? Gossip, greed, theft, lying, sexual immorality, pornography, anger, rage, bitterness. Is there a temptation in your life right now that seems like a victimless, a victimless crime to commit? There are no victimless, victimless crimes against God. And He's watching. We've seen that again and again. Yes, there is forgiveness. Turn from your sin. Trust in the Savior. He will forgive. His blood is powerful. It is enough. But don't turn towards sin. Presuming upon forgiveness and assuming that no one will get hurt. David was on the roof of his palace when he gave in to lust. And then Absalom was on the same roof when he gave in as well. And these ten ladies had to pick up the pieces and live with them for the rest of their whole lives. Think and turn away from sin. The Bible says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. You don't have to give in. In chapter 20, There are a lot more consequences. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. We've got to do something about this Sheba. And now. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. Notice that Joab is passed over again as head of the army. Even though Amasa hasn't made it on time, he doesn't put Joab in charge. David's still very mad at him for having killed his son. 
But notice also that Joab goes with Abishai and still seems to be in charge. Verse 7. So Joab's men and the Carathites and Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa, finally, came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. See it in your head? Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. Consequences. In this case, it's Amasa's consequences for being a traitor to King David. He's family with Joab, and he doesn't realize that he's in trouble. Should have, but didn't. Joab drops his dagger. Probably it's a planned little move, right? Oh, it fell out of his tunic, and he kind of scoops it up with his left hand, which is his defensive hand, right? And he reaches out with his right hand to pull in his buddy from the beard. You know, you got to love that. Pull the beard in for the kiss. Amasa gets the cold blade. Now, folks, that's murder. And Joab, for a time, gets away with it. But there will be consequences for him as well. Verse 11. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever's for David, let him follow Joab. Never mind that David had said that Amasa was the new commander. It's like General Grant killing the new General Lee of the U.S. Let's follow Grant and let's follow Lincoln. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. So much for Amasa. After Amasa had been removed from the road, all the men went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth, Maacah, and through the entire region of the Barites who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba and Abel, Beth, Maacah. They built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I could speak to him. He went toward her, and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago, they used to say, Get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. We're the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. Which is audacity for him to say that, of course. That's not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. Just after Sheba. The woman said to Joab, His head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. 
And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Joab was over Israel's entire army. That uncontrollable rascal Joab gets the job. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelethites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was David's priest. Here's my one word for all of this. Very simply, promises. The return of the king is all about God keeping his promises to David and to Israel. That wise woman of Abel Beth Maacah reminded Joab that her city, verse 19, was the Lord's inheritance, the land that God promised to his people. And God has made some big promises to King David. We read about them back in chapter 7. We call them the Davidic Covenant. How would those promises have been kept if David had not returned to Jerusalem, had not returned to power? God always keeps his promises. The kingdom is saved, not because the kingdom was good, but because God is keeping his promises. As Joshua told the people at the end of his life, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. And we know who keeps all of those promises. The Apostle Paul said, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. God keeps all of His promises, and they are yes in Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises for you? He is the great yes and amen to all of those promises. So trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. And thank Him. Thank Him. Thank Him for keeping all those promises for you and for me.